Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast on planet Earth, proudly brought to you each and every week by Caffeine Gum Australia. Now, Caffeine Gum is awesome. comes in three great flavors, 100 milligrams of caffeine, boom, used by professional sports teams all over Australia now because it's batch tested and it's play on. Yeah, that's all I've got for you. That's all I've got for you. If you'd like to support the podcast, please buy a six-pack or a box. Buy a box. Box is best value for money. and It's free delivery Australia-wide, and it really helps us keep this podcast going. It's the only marketing we do. Uh, otherwise, if you need a highlight reel, reach out. I do those as well. That's it. That's the marketing for today, www.caffeinegumaustralia.com. Caffeine gum's awesome. It really is. This week on the podcast. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Wondering Bear Sports. And if you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple, please rate our podcast, share the video, tell friends. Word of mouth is without doubt the best marketing tool. And the more people that we get to listen to these podcasts, We'll hopefully continue to get great guests like this one and the more people will get to learn along with us. So thank you. Okay, today's podcast is with the other half of the Shoot Shield Coach of the Year, coaches, coach, Mr. Sean Hedger. Now, Hedger's really good mates with Bubba, so it was pretty cool that they got to win it together. And it was pretty cool of him to do this podcast because he also won the Shoot Shield. I learned a lot in this podcast i've already stolen some things that i'm going to i've already taken some things that i'm going to use next year um and it's pretty cool to get an insight from someone that's not from sydney uni about why sydney uni is so successful i've been fascinated for a long time about what makes organizations successful you look at the crusaders you look at teams like the new england patriots um traditionally and you have to look at Sydney Uni closer to home. They've been the benchmark for rugby in this country for a long time, and I don't think that's any coincidence. So even this year, they had a high turnover of players, high turnover of coaches, and in the craziest shoot shield, certainly in my memory, I've been doing this for 16 years, they still managed to win. So it says a lot about what they've got going on there. I've I've heard every possible excuse under the sun for why they are successful, but getting getting an insight from Hedge, I think will will really will really open people's eyes because I think I believe it's transferable to nearly any club. If you want to work hard enough to to really build it, you the things that make them successful are transferable to any club or any business or any walk of life, I believe. So it's really good to hear that. So enough rambling from me. Let's get into the podcast with this week's very special guest, Mr. Sean Hedger. Okay, we're live. Hedge, thanks heaps for doing this, mate. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, you know that the show is starting to go well. When last week I got the other half of the catch pole or shoot shield coach of the year, Mr. Scott Coleman. He, he, he always makes me call him Mr. And um, this week, Mr. Sean Hedger. How are you, mate? Where, where in the world are you? How are you going? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks, Chubby. I'm honoured to be following in Bubba's Coleman's footsteps, as always. Um, there, mate, I'm 
presently uh, up on the beautiful north coast of New South Wales at Kingscliff, uh, back home with the family after after being apart for quite a few months. Mate, um, I want to get into quite a bit of stuff that went on in 2022. Obviously, getting the opportunity to speak to someone that has escaped the Death Star is not something you get to do every day. Uh, but I've got some questions that I always ask. And one of the biggest ones that they keep going on about at the coach education courses is coaching philosophy. Do you have a coaching philosophy? If so, what is it? And is it important for young coaches to have, you know, a sort of nutted out philosophy? I reckon it's, um, yes, I do have a coaching philosophy. Um, and I also reckon it's, it is important for young coaches to have one, but I think they've got to be very flexible in their thought and I don't think the coaching philosophy you've got when you're in your first year of coaching is what you're going to have when you're in your 20th year of coaching because you know it's very important to always evolve and be flexible with your thinking so I am um, my my coaching philosophy it's sort of in two parts I think that the first thing you've got to do as a coach oh, sorry the first thing I try to do as a coach is create what I'd call a friendly and enjoyable environment um, I think if you do that, a, people are going to turn up and B, the, that sort of environment lends itself to a lot more learning um, rather than an environment of fear or, um, you know, environment of, of purely hard work without any sort of reasoning behind it. So if you've got an enjoyable environment, I think um, uh, yeah, your outcomes are going, to be, are going to be far better. And then from a personal point of view, I just believe that I've got to make every player improve a little bit. And that might be technically, or it might be with their mindset, or it might be with their preparation. And again, as a young coach, I was all about just trying to improve people technically. Now, that guy can't pass very well left to right, I'm gonna fix that. That can be a part of it, but I also think you gotta broaden, broaden your influence into not just technical things, but also, yeah, like that, even if it's off field, even if it's mindset, but you just got to try and find something to improve in every player. And if every player at the end of the season, if I see they're doing something slightly differently, well, then I think I've done a pretty good job. I, I want to talk about the balance between working hard and having fun because, you know, I, th I think anyone that follows Laurie Weeks on Instagram could see that the Sydney Uni boys had a hell of a good time, particularly after the final and during the season really you could see it like that's a close group of people how, how do you think like with, with the way the shoot shield is now it's very professional there's a lot of expectations put on players there's a lot of aspirational guys how do you get that balance between having fun and working hard right because i, I think if you have it too much fun mm. not enough hard work mm. it, it kind of goes all over the place yeah yeah how, how do you think about that it's definitely, a, um, it's definitely a fine balance because, as I just said, a part of my coaching philosophy is to have an enjoyable environment. Well, you know, if you play touch footy every Tuesday and Thursday, you might think it's enjoyable, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be, A, working hard and, B, probably be successful on the weekends. So, yeah, I think the um, – I was pretty lucky getting to Sydney University that they've just got a massive part of their DNA is their pride in – training and working harder than anyone else. And that's what that's been in place at the club for, for 20 or 30 plus years. I think they um they're a sort of group that obviously worked out pretty early on that they're probably they're not the biggest, so they had to be the fittest. 
Um, and that's, it, it's a real legacy that just gets handed on from year to year. Um, so the, the, the pride they take in working hard, then they, they get the results on the field and then their relief and their, uh, their enjoyment after success is obviously uh, what you're referring to there with um, Laurie's uh, many, many Instagram pics. But um, I mean, look, every rugby club knows how to celebrate a grand final victory, especially. But um, but these guys, they've got a coach this year that particularly tight bunch of uh, of friends and their friendship sort of um, helps drag them along in the in the tough times. Yeah, I guess winning's always fun as well, isn't it? So if you're working hard and you're winning, you're, you're going to have fun. So that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Question I got asked for the first time last year is is why do you want to coach why do you coach and uh it was quite a stimulating one for me mm. what why do you coach what keeps you going um well I suppose th- these days it, it's an occupation so um it's an occupation of I, I choose and I love and um as I said to uh to a number of groups I feel like I haven't worked that many days in my life because I've chosen the occupation of rugby coaching but then I, I thought um even if I was employed in some other capacity where I was on a full-time professional coach of a team, I think I'd still put my hand up to go and coach something. And even getting back here to the family, for example, um, I've been, I got told that um, there's, there's a girls and boys year six touch footy team. The girls have got to coach, the boys don't. So I just put my hand up. Yep, righto. I thought, I was, why, why am I doing that? It's like, well, if, if there's a group of, people that need a coach they want to be participating in something even if it's a sport that I'm not 100% familiar with I'll just go and help out because I believe you know recreation and fitness and everything is so important for young people um, whether it's year sixes or under 19s if there's a group of people that are in need of help I think um, I think it's just sort of as an older person it's your duty to make sure that they are they've got some structure and an environment that they enjoy going to it just keeps keeps you going. I mean, it's it is something that I've found to be incredibly rewarding um, from when I started. And like we got this young guy who I've had a fair bit to do with. He's come through third grade. He was legitimately a third grader, and now he's just signed a professional contract. And as a coach, that was far more rewarding to me than anything I've ever done in my playing career. Yeah. Um, would you do you feel similarly? Oh, definitely. The way that the, the rugby world is these days where where young men can go and A, have an occupation and B, see the world. Um, and, and there's a smattering of guys at, at the club I was at this year that you know, started to trickle in from about the midpoint of the season onwards. You know, so-and-so is going to this place overseas and this club overseas. And you can't help but feel happy for them, can you? And like, um, it, it's definitely... When I was uh, a bit of a younger coach and players would leave the club, I'd actually take it a bit personally. Like, oh, why do they want to leave here? Yeah. But yeah, my mindset is completely flipped on that. Um, and it's it's fantastic that you're able to help them fulfil their dreams, uh, create an environment where they're able to express themselves in, in a way that they can get those opportunities. So, yeah, it, it's definitely... There's so many. There's so many ways to measure success. Like I always get amazed when, um, at the end of a season, coaches will say, "Oh, oh sorry." More sometimes, administrators of clubs will say, "Oh, I don't think it was a very successful season." Well, hang on, we 
We had 15% more players turn up this year. Our retention rate was 80% of players, whereas in the past it's only been 52. There's so many measurables for what is a successful season. And I think shoot shield first grade uh, clubs especially, they should see successes when players go on to professional contracts, higher levels. I think that's really important for clubs to um, yeah, to celebrate that. I think looking just looking around the competition and knowing a few coaches, there's going to be a high turnover of players every year um, because the shoot shield's become such a high level. There's clubs all over the world looking at the shoot shield as a recruiting ground. Um, so I think, again, that that forces clubs to to coach their and develop their own talent more and more because I think just recruiting constantly is going to become unsustainable. Um, yeah, just, just going forward. Yeah. How did you how did you get into coaching? I meant to ask you this at the start. What was your kind of career steps? Yeah, well, um, getting into coaching again, it's, it goes back to what I've sort of always known in terms of my family was like. What my dad was always he was the coach of the rugby club, coach of the rugby league club, coach of the touch. Like, and so that's you know the old um, see it be it. Like that's just how I've I've grown up. So, but for me on my own personal getting into coaching, I actually at the, um, I think at the ripe old age of about 19 and a half years of age, I put my hand up to coach the under 19s at university. And it was more or less a part of my, uh, my university degree. You know, you had to do some sort of internship or, you know, work experience. And um, there was literally no one to coach the under 19s. It was basically the first year kids. And like I said, I was a, a really wise and mature second year university student who'd made a few mistakes. So I thought um, teaming up with, um, with, uh, with another very like, um, equally experienced bloke, Darren Coleman, we, uh, we put our hands up to guide these um, first-year kids around. We actually did have another mate who was it was really old. He was 30 years of age, and he's a guy that um, had, had played a bit of professional rugby league around the world. So uh, he was he was definitely the, um, the leader of us. But, um, yeah, that's literally my first coaching A team for A season was uh, when I was still at university. I did that in my second and my third year of uni. Um, and then... One of my first jobs I got after graduating from uni was as a development officer. And, um, you know, that's, that's just coaching rugby all the time. You're coaching primary school kids, coaching high school kids, dabbling with a few rep teams around the place. Um, so I did that with New South Wales rugby uh, out in the Central West. And then I went up um, with Queensland Rugby Union and it was based in Brisbane doing the, the same sort of work. Um, I got back into a bit of team coaching up there, coached um, the Colts at the Jeeps Rugby Club in uh, 99 and 2000. And then uh, my role within QAU changed a bit. I basically became the the, um, the Queensland Reds Academy coach. Um, then it was just all rep coaching from there on, all the rep programs under 16, schoolboys, under 19s, even um, Queensland A, which was a, which was a really good um, experience. Um, then I, I chose to go over to Japan for a couple of years, end up, um, end up over there for seven years, five years at, at one of the uh, Kobe Steel, uh, and then another couple of years at a, a club down in Fukuoka called Kuden. Um, then back to Australia, the AAU Academy, when, when that was in place, um, then when that got scrapped, I was lucky enough to have a, an opportunity down with the Rebels in 2014 um, under Tony McGahn, which was... Jumper. Yeah, Dumper, which was uh, which was a great experience, and that led into the, the first year of the NRC. 
So um, I was lucky enough to be given the, um, the appointment as the head coach of the Melbourne Rising in the NRC. But, um, but that was about the time that um, an opportunity came up here uh, in Queensland at Bond University. So I chose to, um, to get back up closer to home and, um, yeah, uh, did Bond Uni for about five years, uh, coached the first grade and then as the, as the club coach as well. Uh, and then, um, then took off back over to Kin, Kintetsu in Japan for a couple of years um, of, uh, of pro coaching again and before uh, heading down to Sydney Uni in, in the most recent season. So, um, yeah, that's a pretty long-winded snapshot of it. That was a good summary, mate. I, I got a couple of questions about Japan, but I got to ask, so you, you and DC were coaching up at uni. What's the Justin Harrison story? Was he, <laughs> was he legitimately walking past? Like, like, how did that all go down? Well, uh, you know, Darren and I pride ourselves on talent ID. And um, our talent ID method was to stand in the, uh, the uni bar during O-Week and see if we could see any big bastards floating around. And the next minute, a, a six-foot-seven string bean went wandering. It was pretty easy to spot. It was literally head and shoulders above the crowd. So, yeah, yeah, we did grab him and asked him if he'd ever played rugby. And he said he played a bit of basketball and rugby league. And we said, that's close enough. And then we said, do you enjoy drinking beer and having a good time? <laughs> you can imagine what his answer was to that. I said, well, yeah. you beauty. Training starts on Tuesday. And we, we had a couple of um, other country lads that we'd, we'd put our uh, arm around and headlocked and found out that they were players for the Inverell Rugby Club or something. And we introduced them to Justin and we said, look, meet your new best mates. And um, we'll see it training on Tuesday. And um, I'm pretty sure those couple of blokes are still two of his best mates to these days. So, uh, yeah, our talent ID methods are um, tried and tested, I reckon. Mate, that's, a, that's an amazing story. Got, you got that one right, definitely. Yes. That's unreal. What's it like coaching in Japan? I, I've heard from a lot of people that they say coaching in Japan actually makes you a better coach as you've got to be really clear in the message that you're trying to communicate because not everyone can speak the language. What was your experiences like over there? Yeah, that, that summary you just gave is 100% accurate. And I, and I was, like I said, I went over there fairly young. I was only um, early 30s uh, when I first went over in 2005. And it was sort of, the rugby was just starting to get influenced by, by the Westerners. Um, there wasn't too many head coaches over there. Most of the Westerners over there were, um, were sort of in the assistant coaching roles like myself. And um yeah, as a young coach, that's exactly the experience I got out of it. And whenever I came home, everyone sort of asked me, what's it like? And that was exactly it. You can't waffle um, because everything you say has to be translated. So you have to double any time that you're talking. So you have to be clear and concise, work out what the, the two or three key points are, and that's it. Like, don't try to get any further with each message. Um, so I, I found it was really beneficial for... Um, for my coaching, definitely in, in that respect. And then sort of simplifying it, coaches have a bad habit of making the game complicated. Yeah. And again, you, it, it made me simplify a lot of things, which um, which I found was helpful as well. Can you, can you recall any mistakes that you made early on that might have set you up for later success? Mm, yeah, I reckon uh, oh, there's definitely plenty of them. What, I reckon... Like I just said, I can, I used to make things a bit too confusing, and I was, I was guilty of of being too. I was, I believe, I was too technical. So as, as I said before, when I started as the the Queensland Reds Academy coach, it was all, you know, I was, I was referred to as a skills coach. So I was like, right, I'm going to make everyone pass perfectly, and you know that 
like I said, for that guy can't pass left to right with a spiral. He can only pass eight metres. I'm going to have him passing 12 metres by the end of the year. And I got very focused on on that, on, on technical closed skills, whereas I think now as a, as a head coach, open skill-based learning is so much more important. And I, I look down through the age groups and I, and I just hope that there's more open skill-based learning going on because I think like how a player gets the ball from A to B isn't as important as why he wants to get it from A to B. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the mistake I made when I was younger. That's, that's interesting. What, what clicked for you? Like at what point did that click over where you, where you started to realize that? I reckon, um, I guess when I was at the rebels uh, under, under Tony McGahn, uh, again, I was, I was appointed as the attack coach and I was, I was really, you know, trying to impress with, you know, this pattern and that pattern. And it was probably the, the first time that I'd, I'd worked really heavily with a squad where we're doing most of the stuff as 15 on 15. And it became a real um, focus on you. You play how you train. So when you play on the weekends, it's 15 on 15. So you've got to train like that. So the more 15 on 15 training we did, the more open it became yeah. and the, the less pretty it was. And then I, sort of evolved to like, if we can succeed within chaos, we're going to be better. And that became sort of yeah, what I really focused on for probably the last the last 10 years of my coaching. I reckon it's like making chaos normal and having success in chaos is, is, is I think, is the best way to train so that Saturdays are a little bit easier. How will you set that up in a session? Because I've heard other coaches say this as well. Like, mm. will you just throw throw everything at them so that they've got a you know terrible referee wind weather like yeah. h- how do you go about doing that in a session yeah the terrible referee is usually me and um and you say that right from the start i'm just going to blow the whistle randomly and, and throw a ball in behind you or throw a ball in front of you or blow the whistle and tell you it's a turnover no matter how well you're going i'm going to change it and i think the players just learn to react they don't learn to complain. They don't, they don't think about why I haven't got the ball anymore. It's just react. So that I reckon that transition, whether it's from attack to defence or defence to attack, if you can get that transition time as, as good as possible, then, then you're going to have more success. So to answer your question about how we do it within a game, yeah, I'll set parameters. Um, sometimes you, you start playing a game and you, I'll say, I'm going to give you possession in your D or your C zone, in your, in your back 50. But you're not allowed to kick the ball out. If you kick the ball out, it's a point to the other team. And so they're going, well, we want to make grounds, but we don't want to kick the ball out. And they've got to just work it out as they go along. So changing the parameters is... is so that's a, implicit yeah. learning over explicit learning. Is oh, that, definitely. That, yeah. yeah. So you're trying to get them to, like, just say you want fast ruck ball, they can't go into contact without having two people. Mm. Matching something like that is yeah. is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, and you you have those sort of as your your base rules all the time. Like the, the guy who is touched must present the ball in a certain manner. The guys who are who are supporting the two sides, it's we don't want a full noise contact, but you have to get a foot over either side of the ball as you're going over the ball. All those little rules that you just and the most important thing I think for a coach is you've got to reinforce it. Like, you have to reinforce them by penalising. No, no, your, your foot, you had foot um, on one side of the ball. 
got her foot either side of the ball. Like just little things like that. Um, be pedantic, I reckon, as, as a referee in those situations. If you're pedantic, um, again, it, it increases the, uh, the amounts of reactions they've got to have. How do you look at failure as a coach setting teams up to fail as a learning thing? How do you mm. look at it as, as a coach yourself? Yeah, I reckon um, it's a bit of a catch cry these days, isn't it? Like, oh, we, don't, we don't lose, we learn. Um, but that is really is one of the more true sayings um, in coaching that I've come across lately. You try not to try not to dwell on the on the on the losing part of it. And and again, when I was a younger coach, and I reckon a mistake a lot of young coaches make is you you look for blame when you lose a game, whether it's blaming the ref, blaming the weather blaming your players, um, you know, because they didn't, so-and-so wasn't at training on one of these days, so it's his fault. Like, you can't, there's no use looking backwards with blame. You've actually got to go, right, that's that's the result that we got. How do we fix it? And that's, I think if you start throwing the question to the group of how do we fix it, like this is what happened, so how do we fix it? If you start coming up with solutions straight away, then the loss is forgotten a lot quicker because all they start thinking about is solutions. Um, the, the, like with Sydney Uni this year, um, they were particularly very, very good at it. They did a bit of um, work with some commandos. This is before my time there, but it was a, it was a habit and a, uh, um, and a learning that they took from, from this work with them. And they literally got into the, uh, to the change rooms after win, lose or draw in the change rooms um, backs and forwards split and they say, right, who's got the phone? Who's taking the notes? And then they start just throwing information out. Throwing so after, out. after a game? After a game. Before, before singing the team song, before beers, before anything, it's, they sit down and that because it's all so fresh in their mind, it's really good. Like they throw stuff out, throw stuff out. And um, what that leads to, it doesn't lead to a blame game of finger pointing. It leads to, okay, this happened. Oh, okay, how can it be better? Yeah, I reckon... This week at training, we've got to make sure we do this and this to make sure we don't do that again. Okay, good. Next point. So that, that's really interesting. So even after a win, you'd do that. Oh, yeah, especially after a win. Yeah. Right. Before yeah. the okay, I've never said so. Had you seen that before? No, no. Like I said, it's something that they got out of um out of some work they did with um these commandos who who were fantastic. Uh, they they started off as, as a I think that the main aim of the involvement was to, to educate their leaders and develop their leaders. But obviously they, they worked as a group really well and the leaders also developed quite well out of it. But um, yeah, those those little sort of techniques um, that they used and they obviously had it introduced to them by the army guys when they were in a, in a three day hell camp and they thought, no, no, we're going to use that um, in our games as well. That's fantastic. I'm going to steal that 100%. <laughs> Do you think mentors are important for young coaches? And do you have a mentor or anyone that you run ideas by? Do you have anyone uh, you talk to? I think mentors are really, really, really important. And um, I don't want to sound critical of, of the coaching system or anything at the moment, but I think it's something we don't do well. Uh, I know when I was, as a development officer, it was a big thing when you did your level two that you had to have a mentor. If you did level three, you had to have a mentor. And I think... Um, yeah, I just don't think we've been doing it as well over, over the past few years. I sort of, as going along um, 
as an assistant coach, I, I figure any one of my head coaches, I, I looked to them as a mentor. I worked under Adrian Thompson quite a bit. He's, he's working with Rugby Australia now in, in the Pathways, the Pathways manager. I worked under him in Japan, in Australia, um, even when I was before I went to Japan with, with the Reds Academy. Um, so I always found him really a really good role model. If anything, I learned a lot of good head coaching techniques off him. Same as when I was at um, the Rebels, um, Tony McGahn, his attention to detail was phenomenal. So that's something I I learned. So I, I sort of took it, I took on board from him. But when it comes to a, a, a consistent mentor, I probably haven't had anyone. But um, one thing that we, well, I say we, but there's a group of us that I think the collaboration and, and communicating with each other, a bunch of... Um, the GCs. The GCs, you, you, you know, the secret handshake. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it is, a, you know, it's a WhatsApp group and there's as much sledging that goes on there as, um, as, as, uh, as mentoring. But just the fact that we can collaborate, I reckon collaboration, it, it's done really, really well in New Zealand and we don't do it that well here in Australia, I reckon. Um, and even podcasts like this, is, it's a great start because it gets coaches all listening to the same thing and then thinking and, and probably creates conversations. So yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that that I think we can get better at in Australia. I, I agree totally with the collaboration part as well. Like being a young Ford co- Ford's coach in the Shoot Shield, being able to talk to some of the other guys and go, "What do you think here? What do you do there?" Mm-hmm. That's been very valuable for me this year, mm-hmm. and probably I, I think has sped up my learning more than any coaching course that I've done. Um, to yeah. be fair, like, I don't know if like, you probably because you're only young into the coaching. Um, the, the old style level two that used to happen was a four-day live-in camp. And I remember when I did my level two, it was at St. Joey's. Um, so there's a live-in camp and there was, it was blokes like Adrian Moose Skeggs. Yeah. Skeggsy, like he was doing his level two at the same time. And you, know, you got a four-day live-in camp and it was in the middle of summer and it was stinking hot. Um, so he'd be out in the blazing sun all day and then so the blokes would need some um, some hydration refreshments in the evening, if you know what I mean. And there'd be Definitely. a couple of runs down to the bottle shop and all of a sudden you're sitting in the uh, the St. Joe's Year 12 common room and a part of your level two was you had these exams to do. So it used to be the thing, oh, you bring your exam down and there's about 80 questions. Oh, okay, if we do 20 questions a night, we'll have it knocked over by the time, blah, blah, blah. But those discussions and, and those sessions, like that's where a lot of the the amount of learning I'm watching Moose Skeggs and some other guy that probably coached or played 200 shoot shield games. They're packing scrums in the year 12 com room and teaching it to some young coach, you know, like yourself. And, and like that doesn't happen anymore. You know, you, you can't do that with an online learning course. So those sort of opportunities, those learning opportunities of collaboration and that it's um, yeah, it's, I think it's something that we would benefit a lot more from. Oh, I agree totally. Even just um, having the ability to talk to guys like Mark Bell and Dan mm. Palmer as mm. a young scrums coach, just your learning just goes through the roof just talking to those guys. Um, yeah. So I couldn't agree more, mate. I want to talk about the empire. Um, I'm So I'm fascinated by and, – and I, I actually am a Sydney Uni fan. I think that what they've done is amazing. So let me just preface that. I'm a, I'm a Sydney Uni fan. I think everyone should make the most of the resources that they have. And if you're not doing it, you should be. But they've been incredibly successful, and I want to talk about that. How do you look back on 2022? How do you reflect on it? 
Yeah. How do you reflect on it? I mean, Shoot yeah. Shield was wild this year. Oh, the season itself to begin with. Um, and it was my first year ever coaching in the Shoot Shield. So I haven't got anything to compare it to. But that was year 16 for me. And it was the craziest. Yeah. And that's what everyone said in, in living memory. They couldn't believe a, a season where everything was so close. Like I remember looking at results from the rounds and there might be one outlier where the margin was 11 points. Every other game was under seven points. Like it's just crazy. And that didn't happen once. That happened consistently. So, you know, West Harbour were coming last, but they beat Manly who were coming first, all that sort of stuff. It's so I'm just really glad I was a part of it. And like, it'll be a season that's spoken about for a long time. And yeah, for me to have experienced it was fantastic. And I think, it, uh, you know, you, you pray for more competitions to be like that because it, it makes makes it all so much more interesting. Every Saturday, you know what you're up for. So that uh, the actual competition, yeah, was massive. Um, and then the, the experience with Sydney Uni, for, for me coming in a, as an outsider, I'd never played there um, like yourself. I'd been an admirer. I've good mates um, who had coached there. Anthony Eddy is uh, a good friend. Damien Hill, another good mate who coached there and had success there. And, and I always admired what they'd been able to do. Um, but to go in to go into Sydney University, you sort of it's not that you have you want to prove yourself, but you just want to you want to show that you're worthy of of that sort of position. So I just try to go in there as as organised as possible, did as much research as I could on on the playing group. Um, I was lucky enough there's a very good leadership group, and I had some really good conversations with them before I got down there in front of everyone. Um, so I sort of thought I had a fairly good feel for the group before I even started. Um, and then, yeah, just, what I did is I spent a bit of time just observing, you know, how do these guys operate? What do I, where can I value add? As I said before in my philosophy, it's like I want it to be a good environment and I want to make people better. Well, I had to sort of observe for a little while. in order. How, to do, you, how do you do that? Was that at the start of like that November block? Yeah, they... they I think because Sydney came out of lockdown about mid-October, I think we were meant to, we were due to start the first week of November, but all the boys, because they've been locked up, everyone just wanted to get out and at least get into the gym. So I think we ended up starting, maybe the last week of October, we actually jumped on field and did a few things. That's when I first got down to Sydney. Um, I suppose what I did was I just kept everything basic to begin with. Um, and Sydney Uni are very big on, at that time of the year, everyone's training together. Thirds Colts, third grade, first grade, everyone's in one big group. So, yeah, I spent a bit of time just observing for probably the first three weeks, and then then started thinking, okay, what what are we? What are the big rocks that we need to install before Christmas? Well, what were the big rocks? <laughs> for me, uh, your big rocks are always your, your general play attack and your general play defence because. Yeah line out scrums your set piece stuff is all specific and your set piece is over within one phase but your general play if you can have all of your principles around that you know what your what your shape is where you're trying to go um and do it consistently uh, and in order to do it consistently you have to have a good breakdown so they're they're my big rocks is you get your your principles of your your defense your principles of your attack shape and your ability to win breakdowns. Well, if you do that, um, you know, you can play a game of rugby and if you're good enough to hold onto the ball, you won't need line outs or scrums. 
would that would that is that first grade all the way through to third grade cults? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, so the yeah the the yeah, the, the calls that we were using in first grade were, and the shapes are exactly the same for third grade cults. This is probably going to be a pretty blunt question, but knowing what you know now, having been on the inside, why does Sydney Uni consistently win? It's it's funny. Laurie, Laurie, you played with Laurie Weeks before. Laurie Weeks said to me, you know, in the euphoria of the win, he goes, you know, other clubs say we don't have culture. This is culture. Uh, got me thinking. Yeah, Sydney Uni does have a culture. Right? Definitely, what culture definitely. It's a winning culture. It is a culture of winning. It's like a cult. Like it's like the, the senior players, they pass down to the younger players, this is how you train, this is how you behave, this is how you win. And it's... It's as blunt as that. They, they just refuse to accept anything else. And I'm talking about guys like Jack McCallman. He's won a premiership in Colts in reserve grade and now in first grade. Um, it's because winning is the culture. You know, what creates a winning culture is how you train, um, how you behave, how you prepare, how you review, um, how, how, how you learn from losses all that makes up your winning culture but it's and i think it's been passed down you know over many many years you, you a guy like nobby malone still floats around the place and um dan he talks about his time with dan vickerman and when they were living in the college at, at st john's and and basically they, they just rock up there and write this is what we're going to do and then he went from playing into coaching um timmy davidson tom carter those names all get thrown around because the senior guys at the club at the moment, they remember being told, this is what we do. They got told that by Tom Carter. Um, yeah, and, and they now turn around and tell the younger blokes, the Colts, this is what we do. So it's a real legacy, I suppose you call it. They just pass it on. They pass the baton down all the time and it's the, the next man up mentality. Someone might, be get, might get picked in third grade and they're a little bit down in the dumps because they think they're a second grader who should be pushing for first grade mm. they get told pretty quickly you go out and you perform your best for third grade that's what we do just make sure you win for third grade that that's and you will get your opportunity how do you create that because i've like that that's got to be mm. that's the question i think everyone who's ever involved in any sport wants to answer is it something that you can well, I, I, think, I think you can create it, but it, it, it doesn't get done in one season. Um, and you need that. You need you need those leaders to understand it and to be prepared to live it, and then be prepared to pass it on. So uh, when when they're getting towards the end of their um, their first grade career, they've got to be prepared to go, oh, you know what, I want to pass this on to the next generation. And that's that's where Sydney have been very um, lucky, particularly in the last couple of years. We're talking about guys getting pro contracts and going all off and over the world. Um, Nick Ryan, the director of rugby there, has been very, very active in reconnecting with everyone all over the world. And he's got them all on a database and he just keeps in touch with them. So Tom English comes back, plays two or three weeks of reserve grade, before he gets a shot in first grade. And he says to me, you put me wherever you want. I'm happy. I just want to play rugby for Sydney Uni. Like that. Sammy Talakai. Sammy Talakai. 
Yeah, you know, see, he, that's something I've always said. Like, um, I sort of kind of came through the Paddy Ryan era, and Paddy, hundred Super Rugby games, would always go back and play for Sydney Uni whenever he could. He'd play second grade if he had to, mm. and any anyone that's ever played for Sydney Uni has that similar mindset. Yep. Which yep. I think any any club would love to have that. And I, I think, um, I think it all comes back to a lot of those guys would have all played Colts at the club. Um, Sorry, maybe not all, most. Nobby, I think, had one of his first years in Canberra, but then he came up and lived in college. I think that, it's like I said about Justin Harrison, I met, introduced him to two blokes from Inverell and they're now two of his best mates. Like your best mates tend to be those guys that you, when you first leave school and you, you know, you first go to the pubs with and you make probably a lot of mistakes on and off field with your mates and you become a really tight group. That's what Sydney Uni has a lot of. They're very, they're very lucky. They benefit from the the college system, you know, St John's, St Andrews, St Paul's, because they a lot of those guys will go out of um, uh, going to boarding schools. Some of them will go to uh, at least attending private schools, and they go and live in the colleges. And then all of a sudden, you're living with your best mates, you eat, sleep, breathe, go to the pub, drink, um, train hard play hard on and off the field and you just become this really connected group. And so therefore, if there's ever an opportunity for you to reconnect or be a part of it or look your mates in the eye and say, I don't feel like playing for Sydney this weekend. Like that's just not done because they're such tight mates. It's, it's mateship and, and the brotherhood of it all, I think really keeps them, um, keeps them going. Um, they're, yeah, they're lucky that that's what they've got that um that college system to sort of um to really do you think bring that out. do you think that's a big an advantage as everyone says it is like I, other clubs have access to great facilities other clubs have resources mm. other clubs have universities like is is it that much of an advantage do you think I think the um I think the living together is a is a really big advantage. That's probably like I know Randwick's got a good that good association with UNSW. I don't know if it's quite the same because you see these guys, um, like I said, they they just live they live together. They, they rock up to training together. They they walk home to train together. They go and eat together. Like it's yeah. The um, Benny Darwin's thing about cohesion. He actually gave a really good presentation to uh, the group that's called the Friends of, of Sydney University, which are the um, the alumni and the the business people who who do a great job of offering mentorship to the graduating players. Uh, and and Benny Darwin gave a really good presentation on that cohesion factor. And you know he he, he presents that to professional teams, and he, I think he's breaking into the European uh, soccer market these days with about cohesion between players equals success. Uh, and he made the point that Sydney University would have the highest cohesion factor out of any rugby club just about in the world because um, not only do you have the guys all rocking up and playing Colts together, but then you divide those groups down and there's groups of players who would have all played together at Riverview or at Kings. For example, in that grand final uh, winning team of ours, Jack McCallman, Kieran Lowe, Eddie Pullman, Henry Robertson, they're all from Kings. And even though Jack would have been a few years above them, there's still that cohesion factor of they got taught probably, you know, by Stephen James at the school. So it's usually all those little cohesion factors equals um, it, it was a bunch of players that are more connected than anyone else. Like that, that is easily the most connected group I've ever been a part of. Um, 
you know, there's Ben Hughes, Tim Clements, Rowan O'Regan. They were winning their, they were winning their third shoot shield. Um, like I said, Jack McCammon was winning his third premiership with the club. I just and they just they've all been there together and come through together. And they, like I said, they get passed down the message that's all the same the whole time. You know, you know, it's interesting as well. Like rugby fundamentally is a very difficult game to play. If you have an attachment to the place you're playing for and the people that you're playing with, mm. you're far more likely to put in when it gets tough yeah. than a, of some guy you just met who just rocked up mm. you know, a year yeah. ago or two years ago. So these guys would have all grown up together basically. And, um, you know, we've all had friends. I've got friends I grew up with who I'm very close with still, and you'd be the same as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, and these guys are, are, are playing, as you said, a very difficult game. With those guys, like I said, the, um, now there's a couple of powerful things we did in, in grand final week about the, the group talking to each other about that sort of thing. And you could tell that there was, like I said, the most connected group that I've ever been a part of. It was fantastic. I, I want to ask you about the program, but just, just on the grand final week, how, how do you, like, do you make it a special event or as a coach, do you try and make it as normal as possible? Yeah. What's, think, what's your thinking there? Yeah, you've got to try and do both. I reckon... You've got to make it, you've got to do a couple of things differently because you want them thinking differently. Um, but you can't you can't make it the focus of the week that is, is to do something that is so different. I actually think this year will it benefited us a little bit the fact that it was only a six-day turnaround for both mm. for both teams. I, I don't know what why'd they do that, by the way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do know that it was a it was a little bit about because what um, third grade, fourth grade. Colts 2 and all that, they played the six-team final system, so their grand finals were a week earlier. So they wanted those grand finals on a Saturday. Oh, right, right. So that's why they all played at Coogee Oval on the Saturday. Yeah. And then the prelims were all up at um, Rat Park on the Sunday. But it was weird. It was the only six-day turnaround we had for the year, for the grand final. But at least it was for both teams, which I think in the past has been different. So, no, it has been, yeah. So, yeah. I think they got that right in that, in that respect. Um, but... The fact that it was a six-day turnaround, it sort of meant we just had to, you know, get in. You know, didn't dwell on anything. Just got in and had to get things like we need to get this done today. We need to get this done today. So you know, you got you got through Tuesday night's training session, and you think, well, we've only got one training session to go. Um, so it was it was pretty good. So we we couldn't be completely normal in that week because of the six-day turnaround. Um, but we did have to do a couple of special things as well. For example, is the club wanted to have a – so they always have a grand final breakfast to thank the sponsors and that sort of thing. So it's a little bit different. And then obviously on game day, instead of just meeting at the ground, we met at the university and we got a bus there. That's probably the only two big different things we did, really. Um, I'm conscious of your time. I feel like I could talk to you all, all day, mate, but I've just got to get a couple more of these out if that's cool. <laughs> Um, what does the actual program look like? How, how do you break up your weeks? Is it is it two nights a week, four nights a week? Like, like yeah. what is the actual uh, mechanics of the program? Well, one thing I got told before I got there was that I will need to tell the players when to not turn up because otherwise they will train seven days a week, twice a day if you ask them to, which is pretty amazing to hear for a club rugby team. But pretty much from... That time we said that the last week of November uh, of October, um, the boys were committed to four four gatherings a week. 
um, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. That's all through the off season. Um, and then you get into in season and it's still Monday is review and a bit of physical work. And then Tuesday, Thursday, your normal trainings uh, and then Saturday game day. So it's, it's a pretty much a, a four day a week commitment. Um, the whole, yeah, the whole probably 10 months. Guys, guys do weights in their own time or is that like mornings? On the Tuesdays and Thursdays, they'll come in and do weights first and then have the field session. So we, we wouldn't get on field till about 7 p.m., um, but they would come in and have a couple of, there'd be a couple of um, weight sessions beforehand where, you know, guys can get there early or guys get there just in time to get that done and then get out on the field. Um, yeah, and the guys who would get there early and do the early weights, so then they've got about 40-odd minutes to wait around, but they'd go out and do individual skills waiting for the team session to start. As a coach coming into that club, did you feel the pressure? Uh, yep, yep, definitely. Um, but that's why you do the job, isn't it? Like you want to, um, yeah, yeah, there's definitely, the expectation is high. And again, that goes back to the whole winning culture. The board's got a, an expectation for you to win. The, you've got the former players and coaches like you know, your Nobby Malones have got an expectation for you to win. So it's sort of, it drives you, I think. Like if it, if everyone's just laid back and oh yeah, you know, just let's just lie around. I don't, the result really doesn't matter this weekend. Well, it becomes a very different environment, doesn't it? So that that expectation of winning, um, yeah, it becomes what what drives you. Mate, you you had a pretty stacked coaching staff. Mm. How did you how did you manage that? Yeah, those that guys. Is, is it a case of you know you're the head coach? This is generally how I want us to play. Um, Bakes go and do lineouts. Like, is leave it, leave them to it, or were you managing them, or like, how did how did you work with those guys? Um, as you say, very very experienced, um, and they're, they're blokes who've, who've held head coaching roles. And I suppose the the thing that was lucky for me is they have been head coaches, so they know how a head coach needs to what a head coach needs to do, and also what an assistant coach needs to do. And they were very good at going, I know heads, you just set the program, and we'll do what you need rather than being antagonistic in any way, shape or form. So they, again, that's, that's about teamwork. They, they just wanted the, the team, um, the whole team coaching team to work really smoothly together. And like you throw in there also, Laurie Weeks uh, was doing the scrums. Brian Smith was, was along doing um, some really good attack work with us as well. And also our strength and conditioner was a very experienced guy. He's done eight years in the, in the French top league. Um, so we all sort of knew our roles. And for me, I had just so much trust in those guys. You know, like I'm, I'm saying to Smithy, uh, mate, attack this evening. I reckon we need some, we don't need structured attack this evening. We need, we need ad-lib attack. Uh, mate, I'll give you, you know, two lots of seven minutes. Um, the, the middles group will come first and the edges will come second. I, I just gave him that topic and I had complete and utter trust that he was going to come up with something really good. Same with Damien Hill and same with Baco. I just knew the only thing I had to do with Baco was um, he could coach scrums and lineouts twenty hours a day. Just <laughs> loves it. Um, the only thing I had to do with Baco over there is just just pulling back a little bit. Um, you know, when it when the when it's touching towards nine p.m. or so on a Tuesday night, we had to sort of like move it up a little bit. Um, yeah, just one more voice. Just yeah, one more. exactly, exactly. And you know, and the boys at the beginning of the season were a little bit. Geez, this bloke's a bit full on. And by the end of the year, um, there is not one player who wouldn't crawl over broken glass for for Baker. They loved him, 
because what he gave them was so much knowledge and so much technique that they, they knew they could rely on it. Um, yeah, so to answer your question, it, it was a bit of management, but I was lucky that they were so experienced that they knew what their role was. Um, and, and I had complete and utter trust in their knowledge. I reckon for those guys as well who have all been head coaches, it would have been quite refreshing taking a step back and just being on the grass and only having to worry about malls or scrums or attack. Yeah. I, I could imagine that they would have all enjoyed that very much as well. Yeah, I, I did get that comment from Damien Hill a number of times that he was just, it was an, he said it, was a, it wasn't relaxing all the time, but it was an enjoyable and relaxing coaching experience. What are the key factors to win a rugby game these days? Is it box kicking and malls? Mm. Like what? Um, if you if you had to break it down, and and we'll, we'll finish pretty quick. I've got a couple of rapid fire questions after this one, but if, if you had to break it down to a few key things that every rugby team needs to have to win, on I reckon, field, on field specifically, I reckon, I reckon if you've got if you've got a good set piece, you're you're eighty percent of the way there. Uh, if you match that with how you play. So if you've got a good set piece, what's the point in trying to run from your goal line? If you've got a good set piece, I reckon that the, the balance that always changes within rugby is, and it, it changes in, tactically, is are, is it a possession game or a position game? And I think Czech at the, the Japan World Cup was trying to play a possession game. They'd catch it just in front of their, at the very top of their D or their C zone, and they'd try to run it the whole way up the field which is fantastic. If that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Um, whereas the South Africans in the same World Cup, which is all about position, just box kick, box kick, and we'll just plug them down there. So possession versus position. I think if you've got a good set piece, therefore you play a position game, which requires kicking, um, then, then you're going to have success because you're at the right end of the field. The thing about kicking within Australian rugby is, I, I think there's the tactic to kick, but then there's the actual ability to do it. And yeah. the difference with us, we had some bad games this year. Uh, the bad games were when, not that we kicked too much, as we kicked poorly. The, the preliminary final against Eastwood is a good example of that. And, and our kickers know that they didn't kick the ball well, didn't use the breeze that well, all that sort of stuff. But our decisions to kick were okay. We just didn't kick well. Um, yeah, so I think, but it all goes back to, Set piece. I've coached teams that the scrum gets pushed back constantly. It's a different sport. It is a horrible sport to coach if your scrum is getting smashed and you're getting one of the most weird rules I think in our game is when your scrum gets constantly smashed, especially at club level, then the referee decides to yellow card one of your props. So you've got to put on who you consider a more inferior player into that position. So you're probably going to get smashed more like it's, it's weird. So, yeah, to have a, a strong set piece, scrum and line out, I think is the um, it's the main foundation you need. I, I think I agree with you totally. I, I feel just from watching a lot recently that the set piece in Australia is going to make a bit of a renaissance. I think for maybe the last period of time, we focused a lot on, on defence or structure and the set piece and having good scrummaging, good mauling is going to become really important. And you could see with a lot of the tries, Sydney Uni, um, I think Wildfires to hell of a lot of more tries this year. If you don't have them all, yeah. it's very hard to win. Yep, I, I agree 100%. And that's where I'm, I'm glad Dan McKellar's gone up to the Wallabies and, and they're 
sort of emphasising that a lot more as well. Mark Bakewell made a really good point um, to our group at one of the one of the many gatherings we had post um, post grand final. But he said that you know Australian rugby at the moment it's a little bit disjointed. Back when we were successful, you know, um, the Randwick way was the way, and that was actually a world leading way, and that transferred into New South Wales and transferred into the Wallabies, and we had success. Super Rugby came along, still that Ramwick way was pretty strong and they sort of all infiltrated down to the Brumbies. You know, Ewan McKenzie was down there, David Knox. And um, so the Ramwick way was, to, but it still transferred up into the Wallabies and was still successful. Whereas you go now, so who's, what's the most successful club into provincial rugby programs? No, those don't, there's just not a, a linear way you can follow up to the Wallabies and therefore being successful. I think we're, we're so disjointed and I think that comes back to a lot of our, what, are, what our coach is trying to do. Like, as you said, you love sitting around listening to Mark Bell. You know, if, if Belly and Baco and yourself and, and a fair few others were in the one room talking about set piece, then you all went back to your clubs and all the set piece got stronger. Well, that'd be a good thing, I think. And I just don't think we're, it goes back to collaboration. We're not, we're not getting our groups together often enough and sharing sharing our information and we're not, we're not sharing secrets we're sharing information and if we do that as a game we're going to get stronger and like i said I've, I've been over to new zealand and i've spoken to their coach education leaders and that's exactly what they do they've got a saying over there that if they'll invite coaches into one room and if you come into the room but you don't contribute you don't get invited back so because they want collaboration and they want to, they want each other to get better. I, I was just going to say, when I was talking to Wayne Smith, he said, um, Graham, every year the super rugby teams over there would get together and just share everything that they did all year. Mm. And um, if he said, Graham Henry, the year they won it for the blues was just telling them all the attack and this and that and that. And he said, why, why do you do that? He goes, because it forces me to come up with new ideas. Mm. Like, exactly. That's, that's Amazing. Great way of thinking. I just before I before I put a uh, nice bow tie on this, mate. I just wanted to say, if a mall collapses less than half a meter from the the try line, and you're going to award a penalty to the attacking team, why the fuck is it not a penalty try? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like exactly. if it's a penalty, it's a fucking penalty try. Yeah. Anyway, I just had to say that. Yeah. Um, mate, couple little rapid fire ones. Mm-hmm. Um, are you a reader? Do you read much? I I used to be, and I just post kids. I, I just time seems to have slipped away. But you know what? I've got a pile of books on my bedside table. They just sit there. They gather a lot of dust. But I, I have any got a, recommend? I so the one that I've read the most of is um, "Belonging" by Owen Eastwood. Yeah, you read that one. It's, yeah, I haven't read it, but I want to. Yeah, yeah. It's it, like, I, like I said, I'm about halfway through it, and it, it's really good. Yeah. There's another one, um, "How to Fix the Future," which is a little bit more. It's about learning and, and kids and, and screens and, and all that sort of stuff, which I find really uh, interesting, particularly as I've got a couple of uh, 11-year-olds. Um, yeah, how – because it affects – how kids learn affects yeah. how I've got to then communicate with them. So it's, it's interesting. So how to fix the future. Okay, I'll check that one out as well. Yeah. Um, do you listen to many podcasts? Yeah, yeah. A lot more podcasts than I do reading, that's for sure. Um, well, mate, can you, can you throw a couple at us? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Training Ground Guru is a pretty good one. That's, that's sponsored by Huddle Sports Code. So yeah. oh, that's, a, that's a product we all use a fair bit. Um, 
the High Performance Podcast and the Great Coaches Podcast. I'm sure that's been mentioned a, a lot of times. Um, another one, little one I found was Inside the Mind of Champions. That's a pretty good one. It's, it talks obviously a lot more about mindset than anything else. And um, but probably my most relaxing one is is the Howie Games, um, which I still think you can you find some really good. Um, nuggets out of some of his guests. His, his latest one was Shaquille O'Neal was particularly impressive. Okay, I'll take that one out. What's a common mistake you see from young coaches? I, actually, sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase that. If you yeah. could give one piece of advice to a young coach just starting out, what would it be? I reckon um, <clears throat> the ability to stay calm. And as I said before, I reckon it's a mistake I made. Stay calm and don't go into the blame game. Like to start, get over the, get over any mistakes, and ask why the mistake was made rather than allocating blame and and trying to personalise it in any way. Um, yeah, I think you can do that if you stay calm and you and you're sort of looking forwards for solutions rather than um, rather than blames and excuses. Excuses are something that I I can't stand. No excuses. This might tie into my last question. What advice would you give 18-year-old Sean Hedger? Yeah, on field or off field? Whatever, whatever direction you <laughs> want to go. <laughs> um yeah. Oh, I reckon it's it's important to back yourself. Um and, and I think it's not, it's not shyness or being humble, but it's actually just back your abilities. Um, I, I sort of learned that lesson probably in, in my late 20s. It was like I, I was having success through coaching and through my career um, through, yeah, through doing what I was doing, obviously. So, but I wasn't really sure about why I was doing things. I was, I was following the system that was in front of me. It wasn't until you you slowed down and went, what do I think? Yeah, and then back yourself to take what you think forwards. Um, yeah, I think I did that once I got over to Japan where I didn't have other people to talk to too much. I was like, right, I've got to come up with the answers right now. And then I found that what I was coming up with worked pretty well. So if you get yourself in that situation, if you've got no one else to tell you what to do, you have to actually rely on yourself. Just get into a, get into a quiet room. Uh, whether it's a pen and paper or just your computer and just work out what do you think, then you just back yourself and take that forwards. Fantastic, mate. Um, what's next? What are you doing now? Um, yeah, I, I'm about to start a, a gig with um, IRA, the International Rugby Academy of Australia, um, which, which I'm really looking forward to, coach development and player development camps uh, around Australia. I think, as I said the, before, I think there's a few things we can, um, we can do a little bit better in coach development. That's not a dispersion on the, on the current system. I think, if anything, we've been under-resourced. Like our game is under-resourced in so many places, and I think coach development is just one of those areas. So I'm lucky enough that this, uh, the Rugby Academy of um, yeah, have been able to appoint me as as a coaching director, and and I hope to um yeah, to get some influence out there through the coach development camps and the player development camps. It'll be good fun, mate. Fantastic. Um, so we'll make sure that that goes out um on time when it's supposed to go out. And um, mate, thanks so much for this, Hedge. I really enjoyed that, mate. Oh no worries, Chubby. It's been uh, been good. All right, guys. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
If you have watched this on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. If you're on Spotify or Apple, please follow along on our channel and please make sure you subscribe, rate, share, do whatever you have to do. And as always, please follow along on social media at Wandering Bear Sports on both Instagram and Facebook. And I've got Duncan Chubb on LinkedIn and Twitter. And that's it, guys. Thanks very much for listening. We'll be back again next week. And I hope you have a great week and look after yourself, look after each other and have a very, very good one.